You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 146 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's the last Sunday of the month and we are going to listen to a pre-recorded talk as usual. But this time I have a lot of things to say before we get the show on the road. And I gotta warn you, um, some people listening to this might get very offended to this episode. Um, And if you don't understand the points I'm trying to make, you're gonna get even more offended um but uh, sometimes it's quite fun to be a bit offensive so uh, let's get going I just don't I don't fit in anywhere man I really don't I don't agree with anything either not even what I just said so I think you see the fucking problem here that was the great late comedian Bill Hicks and the reason I played that sample is because that is exactly how I feel especially when it comes to being politically correct. If there is anything that bugs me with people who are interested in alternative medicine, psychedelics and all that jazz, is the level of liberal wimpiness that usually comes with the territory. It is more common, I guess, with people from North America, but I guess it applies everywhere. So I thought I would possibly offend everyone that listens to this podcast by saying what I really feel and think, by, you know, not being politically correct. And there is a great chance that everything I'm about to say is going to be misunderstood, and that's fine, I'm used to it. That's why I played uh, this uh, Bill Hicks sample a bit earlier, because, you know, I don't fit in. (laughs) Uh, Not even with my own crowd, so that's the problem. Um, But people can think what they like. I know what's in my heart and that's all that matters to me. Just because I preach love and compassion does not mean I think we should have safe spaces and put pillows around everyone just in case they are so sensitive that they cannot stand to be in the presence of someone with a different point of view. Humanity needs not only to grow a bigger heart, but it also needs to grow bigger balls, I think. And not be so oversensitive all the fucking time. Just the other day I read about some university that wanted to ban Lou Reed's song Walk on the Wild Side. Which is a tribute to transgendered people. But for some reason they felt that to call transgendered people people who walk on the wild side is an insult and it might offend and trigger them is to me the most stupid thing I ever heard because Lou Reed he was uh, or he wasn't maybe I don't know if he was but he dabbled with being a transgendered person and he loved transgendered people and he was probably one of the first people who ever mentioned transgendered people in a positive light That song is a tribute to transgendered people. But this is what I mean, like, we, I mean, not we, but, you know, a large part of society has become so sensitive at every little thing, it's starting to become completely ridiculous. 
Oh well. Uh, before I say anything more, I just want to make it clear that I've always liked the archetype of the Joker. Why so serious? In this episode, we are going to focus on what is truth, what is belief, and what is politically correct. We are going to do this with the help of our dear friend Terence McKenna. But before we listen to his insights into these topics, I have a few more things to say myself regarding political correctness. First of all, I don't like the politically correct. For instance, let's take homosexuality as an example. These days it is politically correct to believe that homosexuality is a human right and not a disease. And I agree with this 100%. But I had such a view long before homosexuality became politically correct. In other words, to not be politically correct does not mean one does not agree with some politically correct viewpoint. It might just mean that that politically correct viewpoint has not happened yet. It simply means that PC, as it's also called, has gone a bit too far because sometimes we can be PC before something even is PC, like in the homosexual rights example. If you notice the war between alt-right people, the new right, and the social warrior lefties all over the internet, then you might have picked a side. You might be an alt-right or you might be a lefty or a liberal. But I think both these groups are equally stupid, dogmatic, ignorant and idiotic from different angles. The biggest difference between a liberal or a lefty and the person on the right is that they vomit their PC garbage under different colored banners. To give an example, for instance, it is not politically correct to say the word cunt. The people on the right, the conservative Christian right especially, might think that it's not a family-friendly word and it's not a very Christian thing to say cunt. And the people on the left might think it is a derogatory term of women and an extremely anti-feminist term. So that's why they don't like to use the word cunt. Well, both these people are the reason we need to have such a word because such people are cunts because uh, why are they wasting so much time if somebody uses the word cunt when people are worked to death in the coltan mines of Congo so we can use smartphones and play Xbox isn't that more important to be upset about another thing that really bugged me, I remember when I lived in in America for a while was that I I said damn a few times and and they said oh you can't say damn, you have to say dang, because damn is a swear word so you have to substitute damn with dang and I went but if I'm just, if I'm saying dang but you know I mean damn, am I not saying damn? It's the same problem with with saying the n-word if I say the n-word you all know I am saying nigger so why can't I just say nigger why say n-word when those two words are the same I mean when we when society reaches the level that we need to cherry pick what words we use so we don't offend anybody else then we are having a huge problem 
what is really offensive and what should be offensive and what we should really be sensitive about, especially all of us who live in the Western world, is that we basically live on the blood, sweat and tears of millions of people who live their life from birth to death in such horrible conditions only so we can take pleasure from their labor because you don't think all these products that we have in society and you don't think all this wealth we have in society that it came from heaven slavery never ended colonialism never ended Fascism never ended. The Roman Empire never ended. It is still there. Just in a different shape. In a different form. With a more user-friendly name and system. The feudal system isn't gone. It's still there. What's the difference of paying taxes to some prince or to some government? Let's go back to the feminism train wreck for a bit, which have gotten way out of hand, and I want to offend a few more people. Um, Now, I don't have a problem with women having the same pay and the same rights as men. This is pretty obvious. But it has reached the same level as the Jews, and I will get to that a bit later on. Let's not forget the Jews. Uh, What really bugs me with feminism is this type of feminism that in some fucked up way implies that women are inferior to men. Yep. That's right. They deem so-called women-related things as wrong. For example, in some feminist circles, a woman can't have long hair, can't dress in high heels, can't use makeup, you know, because if she does, she is serving the men or she is being brainwashed. And maybe she has been brainwashed, but it's still fucked up on so many levels because a woman... A woman, in my opinion, can dress and behave in any way she wants. It has got nothing to do with equal pay or equal rights. If she wants to dress like a porn star, she can. If she wants to dress like a nun, she can. What does it have to do with equality? Nothing. In all these things that people are sensitive and politically correct about, it's all about projection. They project their own horrible views on things onto other people. For instance, if a woman dressed like a slut and somebody thinks that is derogatory for her in some way, then that person who thinks that is the one who looks at the woman as somebody dressed as a slut. Do you understand my point? I have another example to maybe explain it a bit better. Uh, When I was a kid, I used to love the comic Tintin. Uh, And uh, recently there's been a debate about Tintin, the Tintin comic book being racist because there is one book when Tintin goes to Africa. And there's talk of censoring these comic books because uh, the Africans, the black people, are portrayed... 
with the black face, you know, the big red lips and, you know, they portrayed in a certain way and they think it's racist or whatever. And this really surprised me because I read those comic books a lot as a child and not once, not ever, never, ever did I ever noticed that the Africans were depicted in a negative way. I never saw anything racist with it. I never saw them as anything negative in those comic books. In fact, they helped Tintin. They they were on his side. The This uh, comic book uh, that has been under the most heat when Tintin goes to Africa, the bad guy in that book is a big-nosed Arab-looking guy. And nobody seems to be upset about that. No, they are upset about the, the, the black people in it. So, yet again, those people who are upset that that comic book looks racist is because those people are racist. Because they saw when they saw those drawings of those black people, they had a racist idea of that. But I didn't. You know? Do you understand? I hope I'm making myself clear. But uh, I think this is very interesting and something to consider. Because we project our own faults onto other people. So, the people who see racism, they are the racists. Now, that doesn't mean there is no racism. I'm just talking about being sensitive over stuff like a comic book, you know. Tintin's comic book, when he went to Africa, is not the cause of all the horrible things that's happened to black people. You know, that book is not the guilty party. The guilty party is people that we have on our money today. Like George Washington, he had slaves. (sighs) Oh well, let's listen to famous actor Morgan Freeman talking to Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. Black History Month you find ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come on. What do you do with yours? Which month is White History Month? (laughs) Well, well, come on, tell me. Well, I'm Jewish. Okay, which month is Jewish History Month? Uh, There isn't one. Oh, Oh, why not? Yeah. You want one? No, no. No, I, I, right. I, I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? Until... Stop talking about it. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. Yeah, so I hope you get my point. Uh, and if you get upset, it's probably because you are taking things way too seriously. But that does not mean that racism and homophobia or women's rights are not serious issues. They are. But when we find homophobia and women's rights or anti-women's rights and racism in every little tiny thing, the importance of those thi- of those things becomes diluted, you know. 
We should not divide ourselves anymore. There is only one problem in society, and that's those fucking politicians and bankers and military people. That's the problem. Not some celebrity in a short skirt, some comic book or some song about some people or about some guy saying a sentence on TV. Or That's not the problem. The problem are these cunts in the government that we vote, vote for. That's the problem. The problem is the bankers and the oil companies. And other huge corporations that are too good, too big for their own good. That's the problem. Another big problem is apathy. Because we all support these fuckers. Because we've become addicted to the products they sell. We can't live without them. You know, I'm not saying I can. You know, I'm using products right now. This microphone is made of uh, components that children in Africa have dug up from the ground at gunpoint. You know, we're all guilty, so let's not kid ourselves and stop talking shit and get down to the real issues of the real problems in the world. So I mentioned the Jews, so let's get to it. Let's get to the Jews, because I really want the Anti-Defamation League to put my podcast on uh, a boycott. <laughs> because they are so goddamn sensitive. And I'm not talking about being sensitive if someone denies the Holocaust. I can really understand if they get upset about that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about someone saying something critical about an institution or an individual that just so happens to be Jewish. And then for some damn reason the critical voice is anti-Semitic. Now this is utterly ridiculous. If the critical voice focuses on somebody being Jewish Jewish, and then being critical about that, yeah, then it's anti-Semitic. But, you know... If I say that the Rothschild family are greedy, fucking evil lizards, it doesn't make me anti-Semitic just because the Rothschilds happen to be Jewish. You know? So, just because you are a Jew does not mean you cannot be a cunt. Same goes for any other race, religion, or sexual preference. People are people. There are nice people and there are not so nice people. And the only real and true problem in the world are governments and politicians. Fuck them. They are liars and murderers. All governments are liars and murderers. And I am now Jesus. Now, and this is my compound. I want to see the Constitution burn Wanna watch the White House overturn Wanna witness some blue blood bleed red Wanna come and lead the KKK Wanna pull into the NRA Yeah, yeah, yeah Murder the government Murder the government Murder the government and men Murder the government Man. 
That was no effects and the song Murder the Government from the album So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes. Go to noeffectsofficialwebsite.com to hear more. Yeah, so, so I have a few more things to say. Because in my opinion there is only human rights. Not gay rights. Not women rights. Only the right of all living things. We can shorten it down even more. Because if love is law country, creed, and home. Then all problems are solved. If the only law we follow is love, if the only country we live in is love, if the only creed we have is love, if our home is love, then you have world peace. It's very simple. And we don't need education for this. We don't need money for this. It's a choice. It's very easy. Really, it's very easy. And if you don't think love is cool, then you are a fucking fool. (laughs) So, that was a long spiel or rambling rant. Uh, let's listen to Terence McKenna from a talk performed for the staff at Esselin Institute on August 4th in 1998. Uh, it's a strange thing. It's very complicated. Uh, part of the problem, and we've talked about this in the past, is that the media is a system for amplifying the trivial and the absurd. In other words, man goes to work, does superb job, returns home. This is no headline. No one is interested in this. What people, but but you know, alien mom nine gives birth to dead Christ. Now this is extraordinary, and resonates in many people's minds. And uh, you know, if there were corroborative evidence, it would move around the planet as a hysteria within hours. Uh, as intellectuals, which I by intellectuals I mean people who can read, uh, as intellectuals, we are guiltier than most people in participating in tolerating this kind of. Uh, of a system because it, it literally is a system of uh, bread and circuses. You know, uh, energy follows attention. Therefore, if attention's focus can be trivialized, uh, those who work in the background of social consciousness are completely unobserved. Uh, so, uh, and what can be done about the media? Why does the media behave this way, and what can be done about it? Well, the media amplifies trivia because trivia sells. And ultimately, you know, it's hard not to reason back to one's own guilt. Ultimately, it is the childishness and self-indulgence and muddle-headedness of each one of us that allows this entire system to come into existence. This system of commodity fetishization, uh, uh, objectification of social value, uh, the marketplace of ideas, the idea that everything can be 
to put into an economic model uh, and value, and then our appetite for uh, uh, pop culture, which is essentially uh, an arena of uh, propagandization, brainwashing, and brand consciousness establishing. And it's weird how everyone, and I include myself in this, issues themselves uh, uh, an exception to the felt moral obligation to have nothing to do with this stuff. I mean, you know, you can be sitting with people of great intellect and uh, intelligence, and then somebody will say something so absolutely bonehead lame that the entire illusion of any intellectual class or a class of exclusive understanding completely dissolves. You know, as someone tears off to a sale at Barney's or something like that, uh, there's there's no end to it. And then in the ideological zone, which I keep being drawn back to talk about, but which I sense is the dangerous area, in the ideological zone, there's just all kinds of unexamined, shoddy intellectual goods on the market. Rupert and I, Rupert Sheldrake, was here a few weeks ago helping launch a new book that we wrote with Ralph Abraham. And we were talking about this, and he said what we need to do is establish an ideological consumer reports, where you would publish each month and you would analyze these ideologies in columns. And one of the columns would be, requires any special conditions. And so, for instance, if the theory required uh, an a unobserved 12th planet, you would put that in the column. Then you would say, evidence of special condition, none. And then you would move on, and by this way you would rate, and then people could buy in the intellectual uh, marketplace with a little more confidence. Of course, this is a parody, it's a satire. What is it a parody of? It's a parody of people's inability to perform this function for themselves. The, the last time I was here, the discussion turned toward uh, neoteny. And neoteny is a biological phenomenon of, of uh, prolonged juvenilization in a species, or the retention of, the, the technical definition is the retention of adult characteristics into, or of juvenile characteristics into adulthood. And primatologists studying human beings have been at pains to observe that many things about us are infantile when we look at other primates. For instance, our hairlessness. All primates are born hairless but we alone retain that characteristic throughout most of life. The ratio of our skull to our torso is a fetal ratio in other primates. We retain the fetal ratio throughout life. Well, I, what we talked about last time was uh, how culture, evolution has carried this process to a certain level, and then culture seems to step in to put the nails in the coffin to completely neotenize you. And so we have, uh, you know, 65-year-old uh, men running around in sweatpants and Nike running shoes and everybody having their butt tucked and their tits pumped and all of this. Well, what is this? This is a culture of youth 
the youth values, only the youthful body, only the youthful vigor is, uh, is worth talking about. And uh, it sells, you know, if you can get people really neurotically twisted around this idea, then instead of life being an unfoldment into wisdom, it's an anxiety producing fall away from a perfect state of youth, which can only then be approached through dyeing your hair, wearing certain colognes, certain brands of clothes, psychotherapy, yada, 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 all of these things. So neoteny is what I have identified as the way culture works at us to dumb us down. And I've even sort of reached the conclusion that, you know, nature has a limited repertoire of energy to expend in the evolution of any given species. So once a purpose is achieved, excess energy doesn't flow toward that purpose. Well, it hit me once when, I, after I had a physical and I was buttoning up, my doctor said, uh, you know, in the 19th century, people, you, most people your age were dead, which is true. In the, ninth, the average age in the 19th century was about 36 to 40 for the American male. I'm 52. A lot of people are outliving their culture. And, in, you know, if you're, if you're intelligent and you live past 40, you will outgrow your culture. I mean, some people may do it sooner, but you have to be a complete idiot to just buy in at 55, at 60, at 75, at 80. You know, what are you still going to be doing? Uh, expressing homophobic views, voting Republican, and worrying about the A, B, and Cs of uh, phony reality? I mean, most people get to a place where they just see it's a bunch of crap, you know? The the scandals are recycled, the philosophical issues are recycled, the technical innovations are recycled. Once you've been through about three cycles of this, you realize that, you know, this is a media-created uh, state of cultural involvement and reciprocal narcissism, only to be assuaged by the expenditure of money, and that you can just walk away from it. It's... Uh, it's unnecessary. And in fact, this walking away from it by more and more people, I think, is a precondition to any kind of reasonable attempt to uh, get the planet on a course where crises begin to diminish rather than be endlessly exacerbated. Uh, the, the values of production, acquisition, reproduction are all uh, fatal to any human enterprise except the short-term success of the marketplace. And apparently that is to be the primary maximized value. Uh, my approach to reality is uh, hands-on, and I wouldn't call it scientific because it's not statistical, but it's realistic. Uh, first of all, nothing is what it appears to be. But on the other hand, uh, very large structures are not likely to come into being unless they quickly achieve their purpose. So in other words, 
forms of conspiracy theory seem to me over baroque i think the real truth about how reality works is that it's pretty much on automatic chaos is the ruling player chance is cast in the number two role and the unexpected is in there somewhere and then you know somebody can organize a conspiracy and keep it running in one direction in the face of all that well uh, fine there needs to be a general understanding of what constitutes uh, of what we mean by words like proof evidence uh, and testimony the you know the law is an interesting it's interesting to me how the law has been remarkably immune to the general wooliness that has crept into thinking uh it is if you commit murder that the grays made you do it is not defensible the devil made me do it i mean maybe it is defensible but it's a pitiful uh defense uh people it may be traumatic for people to testify in front of a grand jury but on the other hand if you are have evidentiary material related to a crime uh you're going to have to uh talk to the grand jury in the name of uh the generally established canons of uh what is good for society and i think you know if the meth if those kinds of methods were applied to a lot of so-called paranormal phenomena abductions flying saucer sightings so forth and so on they would just melt like the morning dew it's the uh, it's the inability to subpoena testimony and explore contradiction that makes this stuff at the second third fourth and fifth retelling seem so compelling and then one other aspect of all this and then we can go on to something else and that is we seem to be very naive about the nature of communication and how 95% or 99% of what moves around is unsubstantiated rumor based on uninformed opinion i mean you know we sit here with the assumption that we're all in the same universe more or less and that we're all experiencing the same reality more or less but this is just a polite fiction i mean if if we were to go around the circle and instead of telling your name and your professional occupation you were uh asked to explain how a common household device works so for you the television set for you the osterizer for you the thermostat for you the furnace uh, i think we would largely discover that if anything past the most trivial level it just turns into elves and goblins out there uh, i mean we're hardly different from new guinea highlanders uh and we call, we think we understand everybody's model works for them even if they think you know that it's hemoglobins in your blood that run around carrying oxygen uh because they heard it that way in second grade 
so it, it, this is sort of a terrifying thought to contemplate that the actual understanding of reality is held in our species as a kind of diffuse cloud of expertise but when you try to tease it out from any given individual in the cloud you you find just just a cartoon is what you actually find you know if you read ulysses james joyce's masterpiece a lot of what's going on in in uh, leopold bloom's head as he wanders around dublin are crack-brained understandings of technical devices, how he thinks the electric tram works, how he thinks about the odds uh, in the horse race, how he thinks about how the sewer works. And it's all uh, absolutely cartoon-like fairy tales about reality. Well, if we don't understand things as simple as can openers and TV sets, then what is our real grip on phenomena like representative democracy? or the healthcare delivery system, uh, or the theory of evolution and molecular genetics, uh, you know, it begins to get pretty, uh, pretty scary out there. So all of these things taken in stride um, lead me back to the conclusion that the way to investigate reality is carefully, with intellectual consistency, seek the weird, seek the bizarre, seek the edge, but understand that uh, uh, you can only rely directly on your own experience, the conclusions you draw from it, and mathematics. And anything which comes down the collective epigenetic telegraph is so shaped by the cultural mind that it, none of it can be trusted. All of it serves hidden agendas of salesmanship, marketing, propagandization, uh, glamorization, fetishization. In, in other words, nothing can be taken at face value. Nothing is what it seems. And if you move through reality like that, testing as you go, uh, I think, you know, there's not a great deal of danger of going over the edge. In my own experience of doing that, the only interesting thing I found that transcended the mundane was psychedelics. But I'm perfectly willing to admit that one life may not be enough, and maybe if I'd gone to Paraguay instead of Nepal, or maybe, you know, I would have found something. But I do believe induction Induction, if not prosecuted too far, can be helpful. What do I mean by induction? If you meet 20 bankers and they all are jerks, you may be reasonable in forming the supposition that the 21st banker will be a jerk. You may be wrong, but the force of presupposition uh, is with you. So, uh, induction, deduction, and experiential confirmation. What's not a good thing, I think, is buying in on hype or charisma. Hype is when somebody says, uh, ex-NASA scientists 
so-and-so says this about pro bono proctologists from nearby star systems making late-night house calls in North America. Uh, when you hear somebody lead with credentials, ex-NASA scientist, I used to feel like I should reach for my revolver. How many ex-NASA scientists are there around with crack-brained ideas? And is this why they're ex-NASA scientists? Because they had to be let go because their belief in 13th planets, uh, higher dimensional gods on the face of Mars and so forth and so on uh, interfered with them doing their job. Uh, and it's, it's a personally troubling thing to me because uh, well, because as I said, part of my audience is part of the problem. And it's a really weird experience to have someone come up to you after a talk and say, you know, I love your stuff. I, I, there aren't very many people I respect, and I love your stuff, and I also love, and then they name two indictable morons from the land of woo-woo, and you think, oh my god, you know, this person has no power of discrimination whatsoever. I am a pearl placed among swine. Either <laughs> they're wrong or I'm wrong. In any case, there's enough wrong around to be disturbing. Uh, because what you want to do it, it, is be understood. And, you know, if, you're not, if, if people don't understand what you're saying, then they're perfectly happy to you know, put a communist, a national socialist, and a Zionist all in the same box and say they're all wonderful and inspiring people and you'd follow any one of them anywhere. I mean, what kind of a statement is that? These things are in direct contradiction. And, um, you know, the, the reason I feel like the psychedelic position occupies the philosophical high ground is because it does not require belief. I mean, we like doubters. Doubters are the favorite fodder for the psychedelic experience. You know, those people who say, oh, you, you drug people, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, give me a scotch and soda. That carries me about as far as God intended the human mind to go. And then you say, look, great. Love your attitude. Here's some DMT. Smoke it and then see what you think. Uh, with ideologies, you can't do that. You know, ideologies, they start talking about, well, you have to have the gift of faith, or Mama G has to put the whammy on you, or you have to be led forward through the theology of it for a few decades. Well, this just means, you know, that this is crap. Uh, the real is real. It's real. It does not require your participation to be real. On the other hand, a mirage, an illusion, a delusion, you're 50% of, of its life blood. Without you, it can't function. Without your credulity, your need, your hope, your weakness, your inability to ontologically parse what's going on. It's almost like there are two ways of looking at the world. And they, ha and they come down to whether you think the world is out there and was there before you got here and will be there after you depart, or 
if you are uh, the other philosophical flavor has different names but it's usually called radical idealism or something like that and it's the idea that we are making the world moment to moment somehow it depends on our existence and of course immediately following that assumption is the idea that it we can change it with our minds which brings up the moral dilemma then why is it so resistant or why isn't it the way we want it to be if it's so malleable why is it so uh resistant and once you understand you know what philosophy is i think you you see that these two positions are polar and that there's a lot to recommend each one and it's very hard to make a fusion i tend to act as though the world is really there but i think that ideology is very poisonous and that we should not we should not believe anything it's a it's a form of metaphysical hubris it means you really think you're an important cosmic actor i mean if you met a termite who wanted to tell you his beliefs you would be puzzled of why he even bothered well are you so greatly different than this termite in relationship to the cosmic all of it so beliefs are like they're forms of culturally endowed paralysis you know i believe in the democratic individual i believe in the resurrection and the life well so what we don't care what we want to know is what can we reach through examining the evidence and applying inductive and deductive uh approaches to it i i you know we've talked about this before but some people think that what life is about is looking for the good ideologies we want good ideologies not bad ideologies but it, i think the history of the 20th century is trying to show us is shouting to us in fact that all ideologies that it, the ideology itself is a betrayal of being uh you know certainly fascism when carried to its logical extremes seemed quite unappealing the holocaust and so forth how then is it that the countervailing idea which people of moral morally felt obligation were moved toward produced nearly equal if not equal horror you know socialism you know you didn't i mean different people died for different reasons but you had the same thing camps secret police the knock on the door the uh, godlike bureaucrat the indomitable state on and on and on so it lo- it looks to me like ideology is one of these neonatal behaviors that culture downloads on us in other words belief is for kids it's a fairy tale marxism is no different than a belief in the easter bunny uh probability theory is no different than a belief in the easter bunny everybody needs to get a grip on the uncertainty of the intellectual enterprise i mean this is what if modernism is worth anything 
then it should carry us to a sense of the fragileness of knowing. You know, there are no platonic archetypes. Gödel showed that simple arithmetic is fraught with uncertainty. Things that we thought were so writ in adamantine that they could never be questioned, like the second law of thermodynamics, turns out to be written in sand. It's just somebody's opinion. It applies locally in some cases, sometimes. Uh, so the way to live with a mind in the world, with a human mind in the world, is not to believe things. That's childish. It's it's uh, it's uh, undignified. The thing to do is to build models and to call them that. Call it model building. And why? Because the implication is if you exceed your model or if the thing you're studying has dimensions your model can't encompass, throw the model out. You don't round up everybody who's against the model and send them to the wall because God revealed the model. Uh, this would be the usual method of, uh, of acting. No, then you have provisional, ever-changing uh, relationships to the world. Uh, another way of thinking about this is uh, that what ideology tries to do is create closure. There's something in the human mind. We want to finish the crossword puzzle. We want the good guys to win. We want the equinox to happen against the same pattern of fixed stars. In other words, uh, we want order. Worse than that, we want narrative. But this again is childish. The world is not a bedtime story. It is not a narrative. It does not have white hats and black hats. And so part of this growing up thing, or growing beyond culture, or de-neotenizing one's psyche, is to accept uh, lack of closure. You know, that it, it, it doesn't come to an end. It never makes sense. There is never the moment of resolution. We want it. We want it. We deserve it. But it ain't in the cards. Everything always transmutes itself uh, and, and uh, opens up new avenues of possibility. So learning to live without closure. And I think this is very hard for people, you know. I think, and, and a lot of decent impulses serve this and tend to make people more neurotic. For example, uh, relationship anxiety. People want stable relationships. Well, they might as well wish for a silent ocean, you know? All wishing for stable relationships brings you is further anxiety about your obviously unstable relationship. Uh, people want uh, answers, uh, you know, say, well, I, I believe this and that, I believe in reincarnation. So then that settles it. That means you don't believe in a whole bunch of other things. But y you can make the world so simple, you can just tile over every open question 
with a dogmatic position. And then when you've entirely done this, you're so ossified, we can just toss you in a hole and bury you. And uh, uh, you will then have achieved this closure that you were so frantic to create in life. That's the, that wonderful line from the movie HUD where he says, uh, the only peace you ever know is when they lower the box. Well, you might as well get used to that. And if that's your idea of where you want to go, well, I don't know. It's not my idea of where I want to go. You know that place in Andrew Marvel's poem to his coy mistress where he says, the grave's a lovely private place, but none do there, I think, embrace. Always at my back I hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, so get your bloomers off and get over here. <laughs> a, a paraphrase, admitted, yeah, but yeah. That, that was thought. Uh, <laughs> yeah, living with lack of closure. And, uh, you know, I've been trying to do this. And it's a acquired taste. Uh, it's not easy, but it's sort of like doing, eating bran muffins once a day or doing your calisthenics or something. It's a, it's a healthy thing to do, which takes an effort. And, uh, you know, I recommend it simply because I think it makes it easier to, to, to laugh, to groove with what's going on. I mean, things become much more comical once you have totally rejected culture. And then you just see what a crazy game it is and, and watch ordinary people with the fascination you normally reserve for television sitcoms. I mean, they are living television sitcoms, they're acting out Seinfeld for you better than Seinfeld ever could. Uh, the conversations in the bath are a good place to begin. <laughs> I mean, how people deliver these lines with a straight face, I, I do not know, but I thank them for it. <laughs> how do I deliver my lines with a straight face? I don't know either. Well, it's more like a not thought out conspiracy. I mean, I think what's happening is, uh, you know, I've always said that what psychedelics do, and to some degree all drugs, but psychedelics are the most dramatic, is they dissolve boundaries. Well, cultures and governments are totally, and they sell boundaries. Boundary consciousness is what they're all about. Our class, our group, our fatherland, motherland, our Borgent lineage, our noble race, this is all the rhetoric of nationalism and uh, and so governments whether a socialist state an industrial democracy a theocratic state they can all get together on one proposition the drugs are just terrible terrible things because they erode loyalty to the myth the the societal myth that's one reason of pretty abstract social engineering reason. And the other reason is for at least the past 500 years, drugs by different names, but drugs have been the one of the largest money earners ever brought into the marketplace. Uh, 
where is the CIA going to get a quick billion dollars or two off budget if they have a sudden need to topple an unfriendly Middle Eastern government? It, well, it's called taking a flyer on drugs. Uh, it's very clear that in the 60s, uh, China white heroin was used as a, as a social engineering drug in the American ghettos. Because every time you let in a lot of heroin, the political rhetoric in the ghetto fell to a murmur. It was, it was directly related to how loaded people were on these completely dulling, sedative drugs. Well, then, when the geopolitical game slipped from the control of the U.S. in one area of the world, and we were run into the ocean in Vietnam, suddenly the world heroin supply was in the hands of the imams in, in Iran, and the brown tar Iranian heroin uh, became a drag on the market, and suddenly cocaine became the chic drug in the American ghetto, and that was because the CIA could just open certain taps and close other taps and bring uh, this stuff in, and it made them a lot of money. I can remember, you know, there was a period uh, in the in the mid-70s to mid-80s where hashish just basically disappeared from the underground market. It was unknown uh, in quantity. And then when the Mujahideen began to struggle against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, suddenly you could get uh, 100-kilo lots of hash un unbroken from how it's sold in the markets in Peshawar. So you could see it had not been concealed in any ordinary method. No, it had been drawn up to Pier 9 in San Francisco and unloaded with forklift trucks because the CIA wanted the Mujahideen to have a bank account so they could pay for weaponry. And they knew that hash wasn't a problem anyway. I have for a long time now held the opinion that there is no difference between belief and fact and truth. That is my belief. That is my truth. And remember Tens McKenna's slogan, culture is not your friend. Anyway, that talk you just heard was lifted from the Psychedelic Salon podcast. And go to psychedelicsalon.com to check it out. I also talked to the host of that podcast, Lorenzo, back in episode 53, if you want to check that out. So, yeah, the, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you didn't get too upset. And uh, I intentionally used more swear words than normal. But, uh, you know, swearing is fun. And the people who swear the least are the people who run this world into the ground. So maybe... It it's good to swear because you know we want to be different from those counts. Um before I talk about the song I want to close this episode with I must mention that I get a lot more requests from people who want to be a guest on the podcast and most of these people are self-help coaches that have no real credentials other than a lot of new age mumbo jumbo speak and dollar prices all over their websites. So if you are one of those people, don't bother and try and get on the podcast unless you have something special about you. Perhaps you helped dig a well in some poverty-stricken region of the world 
or you've been in a car accident and you died and went to heaven and back or something. But if you just want to teach people how to connect to their heart space by charging $100 an hour, then uh, you can go fuck yourself. Um, yeah, so that's it. Uh, so a perfect ending of the episode then, and a final insult to those that have PC up their ass uh, is the track Kill All the White Men from the NoFX EP The Longest Line. Go to nofxofficialwebsite.com to check them out. And freedom is in the motherfucking mind. Oh yeah, more yeah.